All right, are we ready to get going? Ready. Light this candle. <clears throat> Let's fire this thing up. <clears throat> All right, welcome to the Hammer Factor. My name is John Grace. I am the show producer, and I'm joined by my co-host, professional poker player, North Fork champion, and policy counsel for the Outdoor Alliance, Lewis Geltman. Are you there? Hey, John. Hey, Lewis. Welcome back to the show again. Thanks. Also, on in studio, we have Whitewater Legend, co-owner of Immersion Research, John Weld. Are you there? I'm here. All right. Here we are. We made it to episode five, guys. Hmm. Who would have guessed? You know, if people could only hear the 15 or 20 minutes of conversation that goes on before <laughs> the show starts, it could be, <laughs> well... <laughs> It's hard to capture that magic once the reporters are on it. Yeah, they were a little more guarded, let's say. <laughs> when we when our careers are all ruined and we're banned from the internet, we're just going to throw it all out there. <laughs> all right, well, let's get right into it. Um, no recaps or anything from the last show. It was quite a doozy. If you didn't get a chance to listen to it, uh, we had some good commentary and a custom rap from Rush Sturgis as well as some other good topics. Um, as always... If you like our show, please subscribe. That way we know people are listening and we can keep going forward. Um, with no further ado, Lewis, uh, what's going on with Outdoor Alliance these days? Um, man, so I'm heading to D.C. tomorrow. Uh, I'm back there pretty often to go, uh, go to meetings and lobby on public land stuff and big thing I'm going back to talk about is this bill called uh, Recreation Not Red Tape that uh, Senator Wyden introduced. And it's it's not the greatest name, but uh, it does a lot of things like some, some permitting reforms for outfitter guides, uh, kind of adds a recreation mission to some of the land management agencies that don't have one already. But the piece of it that we're really most excited about, it kind of relates back to the conversation we were having last week about forest planning, where I was kind of talking about how the forest planning process kind of cues up potential new wilderness designations and potential wild and scenic river designations. And if we can get this bill passed, it would do a similar thing for creating new national recreation areas. And that's it's a pretty exciting thing because you know, for a long time, I think we've done a pretty good job or we've created tools that do a good job for creating like or protecting like really pristine backcountry areas like wild and scenic rivers or like wilderness areas. But we don't really have tools right now to protect like front country places that are often some of the like most important for recreation. And so what happens because those places aren't really suitable for wilderness designation or, you know, it's not a river, you get multiple use management which is kind of the default and that leaves these places open to a lot of like development pressure and mm. pressure for logging and oil and gas development out west and things like that and this would kind of queue up this process to look for those front country places that we could protect and protect them in a way that kind of prioritizes recreation and recreation access i don't know if you guys have been following kind of some of the the controversy lately about uh mountain bikes in the wilderness you guys uh, familiar with that at all? Uh, I'm not know. up to speed. 
So like a lot of people probably even know this, but mountain bikes are not allowed in wilderness areas. It's in the Wilderness Act that mechanized transportation is not permitted in wilderness areas. And there's sort of a lot of controversy about that because, you know, it's a pretty low impact form of travel and we want to have mountain bakers able to advocate for protection of, you know, important places without having to, you know, basically kick themselves out when they put those protections on the landscape. So this would kind of create a new tool that would allow for protective management and still keep bikes in. So that's one of the kind of exciting things about this. Super exciting. So, so this really needs to stand out to our Mike mountain biking listeners here. Yeah, it's a uh, recreation, not red tape. It's the name of the bill from Senator Ron Wyden out here in Oregon. Uh, the house bill is from Blumenauer, who's also from Oregon. Um, probably not a ton for everyone out in the uh, podcast sphere to do just yet, but uh, stay tuned. It's uh, it's exciting, and I think it'll be be an exciting development for getting rad outdoors and protecting places we care about. Well, I think we're up to like 70 listeners now, so <laughs> we're, we're going to be quite the force for, for making this happen. <laughs> yeah. I think we can get rushed to write a rap about it for next week. <laughs> <laughs> why, why, uh, why British Columbia? Why do you guys go to British Columbia to meet for this? No, DC. Oh, DC. I thought you said, I just think (laughs) BC. Yeah, I think the Senate's moved to Canada. (laughs) (laughs) The House is soon following here. I was all all jealous of your trip. And then, you know. Now you're not jealous anymore. (laughs) Not at all. Get some great falls laps in, I'm sure. We good. All right. And now on to our celebrity guest here on uh, Hammer Factor Episode 5. On the line, we have. Original Green Racer and Liquid Logic boat designer Shane Benedict. How you doing? Very good. What's happening, y'all? What's happening? Oh man, we're just uh, going through the motions here. We made it to episode five, and everybody's still got their jobs. And uh, congratulations, congratulations. <laughs> we haven't offended too many people. <clears throat> we're gonna try to do it today, though, for sure. Perfect. Well, Shane, what's going on in your world? Your your talk to us. Uh, design of boats, man. It's cool. It's fun. I'm doing a lot of boat design stuff and, um, I'm actually building a big tree house out in the woods. Uh, that's, that's been taking up a lot of time, fun time lately. Power tools out in the woods is always fun. I think, um, that's about it. (laughs) Well, that's a pretty busy schedule, but, uh, I'm just going to get right into it. So, and I know that Shane or that uh, Lewis and John have got a lot of questions for you on this topic. But uh, you called me up last week, said, "Hey, let's meet at the river. I got a little something uh, special for you to paddle." And I got in a stinger that was um, uh, vacuum formed. And I'm not a boat designer or boat builder, so I'll probably mess up some of the terminology here. But it was a it was a boat. It was really stiff. It looked like a stinger. Um, it was significantly lighter and stiffer and the rocks didn't seem to penetrate it. And I will leave it right there and let John and Lewis, um, <laughs> fire off some questions at you. Cause I know that, uh, earlier they were talking about it. Well, first of all, I think just for the listeners, we should make sure we're clear on, you know, how boats are typically, you know, wet water boats are typically made and how this boat's thermoformed. 
Uh, I think we're familiar with it, but other people may not. What's what's the deal there? Well, uh, you know, typically the boats are made in a, in a rotational mold, which is basically you have an aluminum mold, you pour plastic powder into it, and then that mold is rotated inside a hot oven. And the powder just rolls around in the mold, and you, you just keep it rolling so it creates a smooth thickness all the way around, pretty much. And that's, that's about it for rotomolding. Vacuum forming, you actually have a sheet of plastic already. It's not a powder or anything. It's a, it's a sheet. And then you warm up that sheet and then lay it down over a form and actually draw a vacuum, suck the plastic down onto the shape um, to create the, the, the piece that you want. And um, in this case, you know, it's two parts, and so we actually have to bond the two halves together. Uh, so you don't make the entire boat all at one time. Right. I know with rotor molding, you can distribute the thickness somewhat throughout the length of the hull. Do you, can you do that with thermoforming as well? You can. There's, you know, different ways of, they, they call it plug assist or assisting the way the boat is shaped as it, as the plastic drops into the form, they can kind of push plastic a little bit in different ways. They also have, um, uh, you know, you can specify the thickness of the sheet so that you get the thickness that you want in different places as well. Obviously, there's a little bit of stretch as you draw it down onto that, onto that mold. Right. So, I mean, the big benefits are obviously weight and rigidity. Right. Yeah. When yeah. I think of a thermoform part, I think of something that's pretty like as Lewis pointing out, Royal X. <laughs> right. <laughs> I'm thinking a pretty rigid part. Um, yeah. And you're seeing like in a stinger, what's a rotomold stinger weigh versus a thermoform stinger? We're we're weighing we're, we're we dropped about um, six pounds, seven pounds, actually seven pounds off of a normal stinger um, for this vacuum form boat. Right. So it's ten percent, a little better than ten percent actually. So, I mean, the question I'm dying to ask is what's the catch? Because thermoforming has been around for, you know, a, a while and, and it's obvious it's been used for, for boats as well. I mean, your sister company, Hurricane, uses them in sea kayaks. Right. I mean, why hasn't it people, why haven't people done this with whitewater until now? Well, I, you know, the, the hard part is bonding those two parts together and getting a really strong bond and getting a plastic that is up to the standard. I mean, it, it just like for roto molding, there's all different types of plastic. Like it, you know, everything from what you build a garbage can out of to what you build a kayak out of. It's the that's the highest, you know, grade plastic pretty much you can use um, is the stuff that we use making kayaks. Is there um, just as a side, just as a side, how much? I mean, how much difference is like the polyethylene you use to roto mold Liquid Logic kayaks as opposed to like daggers? plastic or jackson's kayaks i i know in waterproof breathables there's, there's a lot more similarities there are differences uh is that the case with this polyethylene are you guys pretty much all using the same plastic no there's there's definitely differences um we all use different stuff and i mean could you clone daggers plastic if you wanted to but you choose not to for performance reasons for your own yeah well we could buy it i mean that you know we there are suppliers that everybody uses so we could we could just go buy the same stuff but you choose, you, obviously you're choosing to use your own because you feel like it's, for whatever reason, it's better than what they're using. Yeah, I mean, that's that's something that um, that we really like doing is constantly testing plastic and trying to find the, I mean, trying to find the very best thing. I mean, that materials is the obvious place where all of this stuff can get better. It's, you know, everybody's pushed their outfitting, everybody's constantly pushing the shapes, and everybody wants the materials, you know, to get better. But it's, I mean, it's crazy. As, as crazy as it sounds, is polyethylene is a really great material for whitewater kayaks, not just for its, you know, durability and toughness, you know, and, and its shapeability and moldability, but just the cost, you know, like, you know, there's materials that could do better, but the boat would cost, 
you know, $5,000 or something, you know, it's it, the, but the material is incredible for it because of its moldability and its toughness and, you know, that that's the great thing about polyethylene. Um, and then there's that, but the, the real difference that comes in the plastics is how you process them. So it's, um, when you slightly undercook or overcook a boat, it's not nearly as strong. And so paying attention to the molding of a plastic boat is the number one thing. I mean, that's actually um, interesting because there's a lot of parallels between that and fabric. Because like I said, while there's differences in the actual, there's not much difference in the actual compounds, how it's put together makes all the difference in the world. Yeah. Yeah. And there, so, I think there is subtle differences in the plastics and, you know, because we're always pursuing that. But, but by far, the most important thing is the guys running the ovens and taking care. I mean, I'm looking at two things you have to glue together and, you know, we've done some adhesive works over the years with, with, you know, ran skirts and whatnot. Adhesives are a pain and I'm looking at, you know, Philip Curry, who's making astral shoes and, you know, I know he's had a real learning curve there as well. I'm thinking that has got to be a difficult part of this process, getting those two halves to stick together. Yeah. I mean, that's, that's, that's pretty much the make or break of the, of the whole, the whole project. And it's, uh, but the, you know, the polyethylene is a nightmare to try to glue to, but this other plastic is not that difficult. It, we're, we're finding that it's really, really durable. Um, in fact, the boat, the boat I was paddling, I actually, um, I broke a piece that was thin. Like we were talking about how it's, when it was molded, it stretched a little bit too much in this one area and it had a little thin spot. Mm-hmm. And where it was glued at the seam, the, the material actually broke before the glued seam broke. Um, so the we've done we've all this stuff, the plastic and the adhesives. We've actually had a lot of lab tests have been done on them to test them for their strength and shear strength and pull strength and blah blah all that abrasion resistance, and that all pointed to really really good things. Obviously, most of us in kayaking don't trust a lot of that and we want to go beat it to death and we've got the green right there which is <laughs> which is uh, notorious for breaking everything especially so, right now <laughs> yeah at <laughs> five inches it's pretty brutal so to clarify for our viewers this is this is a different this is a different plastic than what a traditional hurricane boat is made out of it's not that's right it, it's not the same thing correct no totally different yeah, okay. totally different plastic. Okay, and so this is totally new plastic that is for the first time ever being put into this kind of whitewater environment and and of of thermoform that you guys have ever experimented with this. As, as far as I know, yeah, yeah. Okay. And so is it skins over a core kind of thing? Nope, nope. Straight, no. straight sheet material. And so it seems like like the natural thing would be if you found that this was working to have like a three-piece mold with kind of an overlap between the deck and the hull to facilitate gluing them together. Is that kind of, would that yep. kind of be the vision? Exactly. Yep. Yep. And that's, that's one of the things, you know, if, if this works, you know, and we're, I mean, we're just beginning to test this. If, if this works, yeah, it would be, that would be one of the biggest things to solve is exactly how that joint works and how it's glued together. And, you know, in, in theory, you know, if you have, your adhesives, right? You know, the, the adhesive and the bonding of those two pieces are stronger than the material itself if, if you get it right. So that's what we're shooting for. Super cool, man. I feel like it's really exciting to hear about innovation and, and construction techniques. You know, I mean, it seems like rotomolding, paddling, rotomolding, 
polyethylene boats has been around since the 80s and I mean obviously the boats have gotten better but it's not exactly like revolutionary change since the dancer even so it's cool to hear that you guys yeah. are working on some some new stuff is there, yeah is there a whole shape that you can make and and, and <clears throat> that you can't do in polyethylene you're excited to try i mean i could uh I, I mean this is the first one we've done i mean obviously you know there's a lot of vacuum form boats out there um mm -hmm. and it, they talk a lot about the edges maybe not being sharp enough to really create a you know what might be a playboat edge but i've seen a lot of edges on some of the vacuum form boats that look really good to me it's whether or not this material lends itself to that it's it's there's some variables there that we'd have to figure out but I mean, the Stinger has got some tight things, you know, in a cockpit cockpit rim and the way the recesses are built in there for the seat. We didn't change a single thing. The handles, you know, the for the for our security bar handles that we use, those little recesses all formed really well. That's awesome. Um, yeah. Yeah, super cool. So That's really cool. So why was it so one thing, you know, it was super stiff, not having the weight on the ends of your boats made it a lot more uh, responsive. Just its overall interaction with the water coming off of drops, it was just like 10% snappier, not just a little bit, like a lot snappier. But what was up with its abrasion resistance? Is all thermoform like that? I mean, like there was no scratches in the boats at the end of the day. Yeah, I, I mean, it's just a more, it's a, it's much more abrasion resistant. Yeah, I mean, I, and I, I don't know, um, I don't know the specifics of the plastic, to be honest. I, I have to, I, I need, it's so new that I have to really, I need to study on it more. You know, our partners, Hurricane, those guys were like, we found this material and this, you know, and nobody's used it for this other stuff. And they, you know, let's, let's try it in a kayak. And, um, and they said specifically, let's try it. It's, it's supposed to be the toughest stuff there is. So let's try to do it for a whitewater kayak. What's, the, what's, what's that? Is it polyethylene or well, something? I, I'm going to, I'm going to hold on to that. What type of plastic it is for a little while right now. <laughs> Sorry about that. It's like Shana, Shana <laughs> What, um, what's the, what's the, I mean, we are trying long, to come up with a name. So anything you got there is great. <laughs> how long do you have to test this before you could release it to market? And I guess, and part of the question is, it would be like, how long do you expect a boat to last? You, you know, I mean, at what point could you, would you say, yeah, this is going to be, this is going to work for majority of customers? Um, well, I mean, I, I would love it if it just, if it lasted similar to what a, you know, a poly boat lasts. I mean, that would be, that'd be awesome. And we've got, you know, we have a lot of, <laughs> so what's <laughs> like is that like a pat keller unit like this will last like exactly 2.4 pat keller units which you're, is you're actually gonna <laughs> laugh you're gonna you're gonna crack up by this but i actually used to send out surveys with people and they'd they'd fill out a basically a paddling log and they would have they would apply a a nar factor <laughs> and so a so a, a five inch green run was a was a was a number 10 NAR factor. And so we would do, we just had lots of runs and, and we'd get people down the river a whole bunch. And, you know, and for the guys that could break a bowling ball, you know, they could, they're going to break the, a boat on the green and, you know, somewhere between 80 and 120 runs. And then the normal, normal Joes, you know, all of us that are just out there, you know, running along there and doing our thing, you know, it'll last a little longer than that. So who do you design boats for? Do you design them so they'll last for these guys ruining a boat in a hundred runs or, you just kind of marginalize them and say we're not going to make the regular customer pay for those extra features. 
Uh, oh my god! You know, <laughs> Welcome to the Hammer Factor. I have, to, I have to ask the same question myself all the time. Well, you know, the whole uh, the whole theory of planned obsolescence. I just I kind of want to kick those people in the teeth a little bit. <laughs> there, we want to design the boat to last as long as possible. I mean, it, I don't want to have a new boat. You know, every every half, you know, six months or something like that. I, I want it to last as long as possible. You know, there's there's no difference. We, we want it. <laughs> <laughs> so, hey, I got a question for you since we're on the Hang subject. on. Let me talk about this boat oh, a little I'll bit sorry. more. All right. So we've got this stinger. It's lighter. It's faster. It's quicker. And if, if, it, if it proves that it doesn't break, if it proves that it – is it just going to be a stinger? What are you going to do with this? Are you going to make all the boats out of it or is, the, is this even been talked about? Are we still trying to figure out if it could hold up to the abuse? I mean, you fantasize about all that stuff, you know, you're like, God, we could, I mean, we could make every boat out of this stuff if we can you make it work right. And, um, but I, all, <laughs> I also have to, I got to hold on a little bit because we got to, we got to make it work before I get too crazy, get too yeah, crazy with, yeah. it, it's got to last. It's got to, um, it, it, the materials got to last the way we manufacturer it's got to last we got to figure out how much this thing's going to cost i mean all that stuff is is a, is a part of it um, well do you think i'll have my thermoform wrap by december <laughs> do you think that's and can no. i get it i need a party wrap too because <laughs> yeah actually everybody on the show is going to need a thermoform party wrap so thank you that's just kind of part for of christmas. Yeah, like christmas anyway right, good, good, talking it up. Good, good, on, good on you for trying you know who knows how it's all going to pan out. There's so many complications and variables and things that happen that no one will ever know about unless you're, you know, in the trenches doing it, but it was really fun to try it out. Thanks for inviting me and good luck, man. I hope, I hope it all yeah, works it, out. It's, it's super fun, but I, I, you know, it's, it's, it made it down one trip, you know, <laughs> so, so uh, next, next I'll take trip two. Really, <laughs> to, pr to production. <laughs> you know, we really, we think, really might be dragging them out of the river next time, but we'll see how it goes. <laughs> it's cool though. It's like, we've been kicking around this, you know, sort of like innovation and in boat design and construction versus racing topic for a while. And to me, this seems like, this is like what you want to see, right? It's like, you're not deciding that you figure it, you know, you're like, Oh, I really want Pat to win the green race. So I'm going to spend $6,000 and build them the world's sickest stinger. You're like, no, we're going to try this new innovative construction technique. And you know, if this pans out, it's going to work for everybody. And it's going to be this, you know, thing that we're all going to benefit from. And there's kind of a little bit of motivation to do that because of the green race. So to me, it's like, this is a cool, a cool example of like racing, pushing innovation in a way that's, hopefully going to benefit everyone eventually you know it's cool to see that it's not just like throwing money at the problem and creating some new expensive thing that's never going to like come to fruition for everybody yeah. else out there it's like trying something new and hopefully it pans out so it's sick i think yeah i'm glad you guys are doing that it's rad it's fun it's fun it is fun what were you going to say john <laughs> before i interrupted you a second ago you were leading into yeah so before the show shane you know, John mentioned you're coming on. We're talking about the boat, and you know this is something I've been thinking about for for a little bit. Is boat whitewater boat designers in general? You you're part of a pretty small crew of people. I mean, there's you, there's Robert Pearson, there's Snowy, David Knight, a handful of others. 
who's going to replace you guys? I don't really see, and you guys have all been in the business for a decade or more. I mean, I'd say two decades would probably be a more typical answer, average answer there. Yeah. Who's going to replace you guys? I think, I don't, I mean, just, it seemed like when you guys started building, like when you started designing boats, like a reception or wherever you started, it was a little bit different atmosphere in the sense that, I mean, it seemed almost reasonable for an engineer to get into boat designing. Someone with a, a degree or, you know, had real experience in that, but it just seems far less likely now. I mean, do you see a crisis coming around the corner where we're not going to have the experience level that we have in boat design? Oh my God, not a chance, man. I'm looking over my shoulder all the time. <laughs> <It's> people, <Really? laughs> people want the job, you know, it's really, I get, yeah, oh yeah. I get asked all the time. How, how can I get on, you know, designing for liquid logic. How, how do I here? I'm an engineer. The, what program should I use to learn how to design boats in a computer? Do you they know, know I, what, what are kayaking pace? Or they <laughs> <laughs> I, you know, I, they're young. <laughs> <laughs> yeah. They're thinking it pays more than a raft guide. So, but, but I mean, whitewater designing a whitewater boat takes more than just someone who can run, you know, run a CAD a CAD program. I mean, they need to know, I mean, they need to have a, a bunch of experience in knowing, you know, the really how a hull works through whitewater and what customers are expecting and what, it, what they're not expecting. Yeah. I mean, that's, that's a big part of, you know, those questions I get all the time is people asking, you know, what, what are the things I should do to learn to become a designer? And it's, and it, and it really is, it's not just the computer, it's learning the materials, it's learning all about the boats. And the, the most simple thing is to go paddle a bunch of different boats, look at them, you know, and discuss them with people and talk about why that one feels different. And do you have a theory about why it feels different? And you're going to be totally wrong. And the first boat you design by yourself is going to suck. <laughs> and it's just, you know, but you got to keep pushing and keep going, you know, and that's, that's, you just got to keep, you know, analyzing what you paddle, how it feels and try to slowly evolve that your, your theories, you know, and, and, uh, get it up to speed with what it feels like, you know, when you make a new boat. You know, so I got to, I got a theory for you, Shane. Tell me what you think about this. It seems like, you know, in the 80s, when everybody was paddling composite boats, that level of technology, like to be able to build a boat in your garage was accessible to everybody, right? Like John used to build boats. I used to build boats. And it created this like, you know, this whole world of people out there who are able to build boats in their garage or build boats in their basement and experiment with new things and do it, you know, relatively inexpensively. But that's not possible with polyethylene boats, right? Right. And so if yeah. you're trying to design a boat for running class five, unless you're willing to spend a lot of money to create this design that ultimately you're probably not really going to be able to spend a lot of time running hard whitewater in it's it's really hard to kind of have that sort of like widespread experimentation that kind of brought us innovations like squirt boating and like, you know, just boats that you can pivot turn and just all the, you know, design progression that went on in the, in the eighties and nineties. What yeah. do you think? Just because there's that? so much upfront costs with the mold you're saying, Lewis. And, yeah. And I mean, I remember like Corn Addison waltzing into our boat shop with a planing hull slalom race boat made out of composite, you know? And that's and, like, that's like a, three thousand dollar project right if you wanted to do it really cheaply to like come up with a design like that yeah but, if but you want to he was able back, to do that i mean he had the right. skills to do it right you know yeah I, for sure i think there's a ton there's a lot fewer people you know that have that have access to that but you know what what's kind of crazy is you see 
um, people use in different avenues. Like there, I've seen now a couple of guys that are doing incredible jobs welding boats together and welding pieces and parts of boats together. As far as a budget way to design a new boat, <laughs> I mean, it, there's some incredible boats. I, I'm trying to remember the guy that I've seen who's got the seams are absolutely perfect in the welds and he designs totally new designs. It's it's crazy. They're beautiful. How about, how about 3D printing? Are you worried that in 10 years, 3D printing is going to put boat companies out of business because you can just... I'll send you a file of the party perhaps soon. <laughs> Thank you. <laughs> it'll be like it'll be like uh, Napster except for boat design. <laughs> <laughs> no, I, I think you're totally right, Lewis. I mean that having all those people that have the it's that it's that basic hands-on thing. You know, the as kids we all spent more time out in the woods. You know, we learned how to tie knots. We you know, and and you dabbled in the garage. You know, and bang nails into wood. And I, I don't know how much of that happens compared to how much it happened back then. You know, it's that basic sort of building skill and knowledge that I think a lot of us had from a very young age, you know, that, that, that hands-on knowledge is, I think is a lot more rare in general. What about you, Weld? Is, are, are people beating down your door to Build the next splash jacket. What's going on in the sewing world? <laughs> That's a good. I, I don't know. I mean, I, maybe there's a parallel in, in boats, and and chain could certainly illuminate this. But the, I think that the obstacle people face now is like we started IR in '97, right? And so at that time, the the sophistication of paddling gear was pretty low. I mean, people weren't expecting a whole lot out of their paddling gear, and you could start, you know, you could start a gear company in your garage with a home sewing machine and pretty without too much resources make something that's it was pretty competitive for the market but nowadays the, the, what people expect out of like a dry suit in terms of sophistication in terms of the fabric and the taping and the gaskets and the trims the zippers all these things it requires a huge investment to even make a single product i mean just if you were to start a company nowadays making a dry suit and if you were to compete with what's on the market now, you would need to have $150,000 at your disposal. And there's an excellent chance you that the first five years you make a dry suit, they'd be garbage. You know, they would be nowhere close to the to the standards of, of what's out there. Cool. And there's not many people with that kind of money who are looking at Whitewater thinking, yeah, that's what I'm going to do with this money. <laughs> you know? Yeah. Um, you got to love it. <laughs> yeah, I mean, it's, it. protect, it's protected us a lot. And, you know, big companies like... Patagonia and Helly Hansen and North Face and they take a look at Whitewater and kind of see the same problem. You, you know, they're just like, there's just no way we're going to pull this off, and it's a huge amount of resources, and it's going to be a lot of warranties and headaches before we get it right. Um, so I don't know if it's sort of like the homegrown talent that we're missing, uh, but it, from a financial standpoint, it's a much different situation than it was 20 years ago. That's for sure. Yeah. yeah. Well. Shane, you got a you got a second to stick around and uh, go through some uh, viewer mail real quick. Heck yeah, heck yeah, let's do it. All right, which one should we pick? So we're getting some viewer mail. We love viewer mail. If you're listening, this is something. This input really stirs the pot, and uh, you know, Weld and myself and Lewis, we're about out of ideas. So. <laughs> this wells run dry. Five, five episodes deep. We're done. I think we can start talking about the brap again next episode. <laughs> People have forgotten. <laughs> we could go back to the thermoform brap. <laughs> so here we got one from Michael Gallimore. 
Um, and this one can come back. Uh, Lewis, you may be able to help us a little bit w with this one. Um, he says, what is, in your opinion, what is the impact of climate change, droughts, and weak economic conditions been on the popularity of the sport? And has this led to the masses paddling lakes and ponds in $300 boats from dicks and less in $1,000 kayaks on the rivers? Anyone? Well, I mean, I could, I don't know, Shane, we, we sell a lot. We sold a lot less gear in California in the past five years. I mean, that used to be kind of a market for us and not so much. Yeah, yeah. I mean, that it's, yeah, it's down quite a bit out west for sure. Well, um, but in the southeast, I feel like if it's if the weather's good, people get out and it's 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 only a good thing. I mean, it, we talk about it all the time, how if you get a good early spring, the the season starts with a jump and you're all you're you're off to the races. You know, the weather, I think, impacts our season heavily. I don't think it's like a correlation. What's that? You guys are like farmers. <laughs> That's right. Kind of, yeah. I mean, I don't think it's a correlation between $300 boats from dicks and, you know, the kayaks and the rivers. I mean, I, from, from what I can see now, I mean, from the East Coast, I mean, it seems like Whitewater is gaining some steam. Or... Well, I'll say I, I don't. Know, that's not that's not that's not a scientific study, but I just look at the put in the upper yacht and the top yacht and and yeah. you know the lower yacht on a weekend and it is booming. Well, yeah. I mean, there were 103 racers on the Russell Fork. I don't know how many people I saw coming down the upper, the class two three section up above it, and all the parking lots were full. And I mean, it was it was a rad scene. So, you know, I don't know. I think more the question here with this is, are the $300 boats are they good or bad? for the market there's there's two arguments one yeah people got their boat they're not going to buy a higher end product but there's also i got this boat and i'd really like one that performed a lot better yeah. so you know. i mean i, I think I, I wish they bought my 700 dollars boat instead of that 300 dollars boat <laughs> but I, I think they're a good thing i mean I, it makes them affordable it makes them so people can can reach out to them. The problem is, is that they give, they give some people a bad experience, you know, as they get in that thing and a lot of them are undersized and, you know, big dude gets in that little boat, swims down the river and it's over, you know, they're not gonna, they're not gonna enjoy that. I mean, Grace, you've probably seen this as well, but like the French broad is bonkers with people paddling boats oh, yeah. of all time. I mean, it is crazy. <laughs> oh, yeah. Down through Asheville, there are, it's, on a weekend, you see hundreds of paddlers out on the, the easy section, but the, and it's in all different types of boats. It's crazy. Yeah. I mean, you can sit at uh, New Belgium and watch a thousand people take out yeah. um, over a couple beers. Um, yeah, I don't know. I think that, uh, you know, I certainly think that the economy has more to do with it than climate change because I'm not even sure climate change is real. <laughs> All right, let's There's do one awkward silence there. <laughs> I was I was waiting for somebody to laugh at me there. Uh, I was like, oh shit. Okay, now <laughs> one more. <laughs> now I got to edit that out, Weld. Right. Um. All right, let's get into our favorite and final part of the show. Rants and raves. Well, oh, I thought we do the. I thought you do your green race. Your green race plug here. I don't have to plug the green race. You know, the whole next show is going to be about the green race. We're going to bring all the champions on, and you know, 
Everybody just needs to understand that all of the stories and struggles of life all play out on November 5th, and <laughs> it is truly going to be a sight to behold. Yeah. And there's going to be water in the river. So That's true. Um, and why, right. do you, why do you put little like frowny faces next to in the show notes when I when I talk about the green rice? <laughs> uh, well, let's think, get to the bottom. Like I, said, of this. I think if you to, live in the Brevard, let's get to the bottom of your triangle. The green race is a very big deal, but <laughs> you radiate outside of that that little circle. It uh, it doesn't quite. <laughs> <laughs> do you know there's like a Look, dozen countries that come out of this? What did, thing? what did you say if someone Look. uses the, the the green as their credentials and they show up in a little light? What's Look. the what's the general reaction? Look, this is what sport. it is. This is this is what it is. Well, you, you're so stuck in paddling up river on the loop that you can't see past anything else, man. You know, just lap after lap on the loop. You know, loop love, loop love. Big day, you know, go to the upper yacht. <laughs> All right, on to our favorite. West Virginia se- class five there, upper yacht. <laughs> on to our favorite section of the show, rants and raves. Yep. Uh, John, start us out with a rant. What do you got? Okay, here's my rant. You ready? I, I got I got to lay down the law a little bit here. You have a crew of paddlers. Your crew, you know, your four or five people you paddle with. You go to run. You you're going to meet to run a class five river, and. Unannounced, unexpectedly, one of the guys brings a friend. Uh, For the (laughs) record, not cool, right? Are we in agreement here? You know, I think there's a lot of times that it can definitely change the dynamic, yeah. Yeah, everyone listening out there, don't do it. (laughs) (laughs) Just show up. If you got invited, show up. Don't bring the friend. Do you have the a friend sp- always around here? The friend seems to be from Baltimore. <laughs> friend from Baltimore. <laughs> no offense to Baltimore, but that's how it goes down. And then there's a hike or, or something. Grace, you had a story about this too. Oh God, yeah, I got several stories, but I don't want to throw anybody under the bus. But I do know that oftentimes there's the extra person, and this is the problem. If you're going to take care of your extra person that you bring, that's one thing. But if you bring your friend and you expect the whole group to take care of your friend, that's another thing. So, well, but, if the fr- but if the friend gets hurt and suddenly you're hiking out, suddenly everyone's involved whether, whether they want to be or not. Because you're not going to just abandon somebody with a dislocated shoulder or whatever. Well, speak you're- for yourself, man. <laughs> <laughs> anyway. Don't bring your unknown friend on the river, right. John Weld Rand. Thank you. Uh, Simple, that, right? that a half step less bad than just hanging out at the takeout hoping to barnacle onto someone. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> but yes, I'm with you, Weld. Okay. And don't okay. barnacle as well, Lewis adds on. Um, all right, Rave. Lewis Gutman. Okay, this rave prompted by John Weld. I uh, gave him this book recommendation a while ago. Apparently, he liked it. Um, Barbarian Days by William Finnegan. It's uh, kind of like a memoir of his life as a surfer. And Finnegan is a uh, he's a New Yorker writer, just like super super good writer. I think he just won the Pulitzer. Is that right for Barbarian Days? Um, That's right. But just like kind of like tracing the arc of his involvement with surfing through his whole life. Like definitely somebody who is really all in feral surfer in his twenties 
kind of found writing, went on to become super accomplished professionally, but just sort of talking about growing old with the sport, you know, discovering, I think, was he like the, one of the first like half dozen people to surf Tavarua he talks about in the book, but just like incredibly well-written for kind of the outdoor genre, uh, really introspective, super, super good book, highly recommended. I thought there was a lot of parallels with surfing and kayaking for obvious reasons, you know, but it was, I thought what he was talking about translated so well to someone who could have kayaked during the same era. You know? Totally. Just somebody who's really, really passionately involved in a sport in a way that has nothing to do with like getting attention from anyone else ever. Right. Yeah, yeah, yeah exactly. It reminded me of someone like these guys running the golly for the first time in the 60s. You know, this, this that story would have fit right into this book. Barbarian Days. We'll put that in the show notes um, yep. for everyone to check out. Yeah, check it out. Really good book. You know, Shane, you got a rant and rave, bonus edition rant and rave here you want to throw on the mix? Well, as a matter of fact, I do. I um, uh, on the worldwide interwebs, I ran across a uh, article by Doug Ammons, and it had a very sensational uh, title that was not very. I didn't really like the title of the article, but the um, basically the content was that our um, default setting for for kayakers in general is gung ho, go bigger, you know, push yourself, run stuff bigger, and all that kind of stuff, and it it uh, brought up a little rant in me in that, you know, and I think, I think it's something I have grown out of when I was a younger paddler, I was always pushing. And even as a teacher, I was pushing people to try harder stuff and run harder rapids and, you know, all that kind of stuff, as opposed to, um, thinking of the style, you know, thinking of like of kayaking, just go kayaking. You don't have to worry about, um, running bigger stuff we're doing harder things that the the what it brought up in me is that um all too often we we settle on that the cliches is what doug said of gung-ho go for it go bigger go home um and he put it in uh you know one of the sentences he said was if you have a paddle in your hands and you're in your boat once you push off into the river you are a real paddler and that we're all paddlers and there is no wrong way to be a kayaker and there is no right way to be a kayaker. You know, we all, um, the last thing I, I wrote something about it, there is no right or wrong way to negotiate the river other than to relish, appreciate and love it. I would say if you bring your friend from Baltimore, you've, <laughs> <laughs> you've done something wrong. We are going to end the show with that one. that one. I very good, Shane. I uh, that was super good. Is there a reference? Will you email me over a, a reference to that link so I can put it in the show notes for our viewers? Yep, will do. All right. Well, thanks for coming on the show and sharing uh, sharing the new uh, material um, testing that's going on, Shane. Appreciate that. I'm sure people will get a big kick out of that one. Good fun. Thanks for having me. Uh, party brap, thermoform. <laughs> I won't really, honestly, legitimately need it till March. Okay, cool. So don't my rush. Armpits are, my armpits are sweating. <laughs> <laughs> and then, hey, one last question: Do I get an Adachi or a Shogun? Quickly. Uh, go with the Adachi. Go with the Adachi. Should I get a one hundred percent? Adachi. No question. No question. Should I be looking at another brand here? Am I, should I look like a Lendl or something? Or am I missing something here? <laughs> you, you, you can do whatever you want, but I'm just telling you the Adachi is a whole other level of paddle. Yeah. Shane, you use it? Power, power. I've used it just a little bit, but man, power. Yeah. 
Ben yeah. Schaff or Straight Schaff? Jeez. Straight Schaff. That's a whole show right there, Will. You just opened up a can <laughs> of worms. Huh? Just get yourself a 202, 45 degree or 60 degree if it makes you feel more secure. 45 is fine. All right. No, I I can do forty five. <laughs> Sixty uh, would be nice. Oh God. <laughs> <laughs> All right, boys. I think I'm gonna cut it right there. All right. Thanks, Thanks. Shane. Yep. Yeah. Good Take chat, care. boys. All right. Later, guys. Bye.